All right, as you guys are headed back to your seats, I got a few announcements in the bulletin that I'd like to highlight. Um, number one is, today is the last day for the Oasis Youth Food Challenge, and so if you would have liked to participate and were unable to so far, you can either quick go to the grocery store after this and bring something back, or we'll take some monetary donations and finish up your shopping for you. But so far, we've done great, guys. We've gotten a lot of stuff. I've really been impressed by the amount of generosity that you've shown and, and your donations to the Oasis Youth Food Bank. Um, that's been really great. Another one is coming up is uh, the Sankofa Journeys. This is something that we've been doing years after years, and now it's kind of taking place. We've got a group of people that are not just from our church taking ownership of this. They've done some really great things. I really invite you to check out the website that they put together. They did a really great job with that, and that could be a good tool. If you've got friends or if you've got family that are kind of thinking about or you would like to invite on that, send them to this website. It's really well put together, really well explained, and, and uh, yeah, this would, it's a good tool for us to use. Um, Another one, and we'll talk about this again lately, but so during the month or during the season of Lent, which is all of the Sundays from now until Easter, uh, we're going to have a Lenten mission lunchbox offering. So in addition to our regular offering, if you've got um, some extra money to throw in there, that'll be going towards the Stepping into the Light ministry, which is a ministry that we kind of partner through vicariously through uh, Terry and Renewing Life Church and our men's retreat. We had a number of men from their ministry come with us and join us there. They're uh, uh, an addiction rehab facility, and they've been doing some great work, and Terry's been partnering with them, and he's really seen, when we've really seen some, some lives change there. So uh, read more about it in your bulletin, and I invite you guys to be generous with them. And then lastly, so we had a, a con- couple congregational services. Uh, one was on the Sunday of the 9th. Another was on the evening on the 16th. If you were unable to attend one of those meetings or if on that 16th when people were getting a chance to share and you didn't get a chance to share, we want to be able to meet with you and give you a chance to be able to say something. Or if you've got something that you're like, hey, um, I didn't get a chance to say this. I would love to talk about this or would love to talk a little bit more about something that had been said. Uh, we invite you to join us on the 8th of March. So that's next week, Sunday. So right after the service, we're going to have a little lunch um, and we're going to have a small group and have some of the elders and deacons here to talk about that and talk with you if you guys would like more opportunity. Also, if you can't make that, right, if you're missing every single thing, tell one of us. We would love to talk with you and have some more conversations and follow-up conversations. This is this is a process that's not done, right? We're going to be doing this for a very long time. This is going to take years of continuing conversations, continuing to kind of uh, open up that, that culture of our church to being able to dig into some of these things that are maybe um, harder to talk about and, and uh understanding that this can be a safe place to talk about some of those harder things. And so I invite you guys to participate in that. We would love to see you, love to talk with you, love to have some more conversations and and um, whatnot on the 8th of March next week. All right. So as we continue in our worship, I'm going to invite Paul up to pray for us. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Please pray with me. Dear God, please hear our prayers. Watch over our brothers and sisters around the world. Show grace as some endure famine, homelessness, and sickness. Please help to ease the anxiety and fear of viruses and sickness that we hear about all too often right now. Please pray for our country and guide our leaders to make good decisions. Please also ease fear and anxiety over racial tensions, the coronavirus, and negative decisiveness. 
please pray for those in our community that struggle to make ends meet, need work, are hungry, need shelter, going through a rough time with personal change, struggle with addiction, or just need a helping hand. Be the light that they need to have them find comfort in that. Please also pray for those right here in our church family as we look forward to our future while remembering our past. Guide us and help us to be a reflection of your love. Help us to be the very presence of Christ to our lost and broken world so loved by God. Amen. All right. So this week we are is the first Sunday in Lent, and if you are unfamiliar with or are new to this whole church thing and, and what Lent is, so Lent is uh, the season of about 40 days leading up until the day of Easter, and we celebrate this kind of in remembrance of of uh, the work and, and the hard times and, and um, the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and in our own style of preparation. Um, and so we're going to start a series for this season of Lent, and that series is going to be on spiritual warfare. Now, I thought up of a lot of clever illustrations and some really neat little hooks to get you guys interested in this series and, and to show you why you should be interested and to maybe generate some enthusiasm for this. But I kind of realized as I've talked with people that that I don't really need to because when I say we're going to talk about Satan and demons and angels and God and everything that goes on, y'all are interested. There's enough TV shows and movies and and books that have been produced about this and have been wildly successful to show that our culture, our country, we are very interested, if not intrigued, by just the mere thought of spiritual warfare and demons and angels and how that is all interacting. And so, and well, and I should say, especially when you can add those words based on a true story in front of it, that's what really makes it a box office smash. So we're going to go to the place that is what we consider here at Christ Church the ultimate source of truth. That's the Bible. We here at Christ Church believe the Bible is the Word of God, and so therefore we believe it to be trustworthy. And so for our series this next few weeks, we're going to be asking this big question of, what does the Bible say about spiritual warfare? And kind of implicit within that is, what effect does it have on our lives? What does it mean to us? Why Why should we be concerned? Why should we care about spiritual warfare? All right, so we're going to start off with the first section of Scripture that we get to encounter today. There's going to be a lot of Scripture today, but this will be the, the focusing text for us. is going to come from Daniel chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to turn along, I invite you to open them up to Daniel, going to chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 10. Um, and as you're turning there, it'll also be up on the screen, as you're turning there to kind of think about what is your impression of spiritual warfare that you've gotten? Because you have definitely gotten a, some some images, a story from either the show Supernatural or the movies Paranormal Activity or The Exorcism or some of these things. All of us in some way, shape or form, um, whether directly or indirectly, have consumed something that has informed our view of what demons are, of, of how Satan works. Um, I, in fact, Satan makes regular appearance on SNL, Saturday Night Live. I've, so uh, maybe you've heard some things through that. But let's go to the Bible and let's see some of the things that it has to say about it. So starting in verse 10, we read, 
And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me concerning these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one of the, in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of, Pe- prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Hmm. If you would, let's offer a prayer to God to help us as we dig into this scripture. Dear Father, Oh, as we dig into what is going on here and this, this interaction that um, your angels had with Daniel, Lord, we ask for your wisdom, your discernment, um, your protection, and your power as we talk about some of these hard, really mystifying things. Lord, may everything that is said today, may everything that we do here in worship be for your glory, not for our own, not for anyone else's, not for anything else's, but for yours and yours alone. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's start with perhaps what is the most alarming part of this passage. Verse 13. There's an angel, an angelic messenger, tells Daniel that he was stopped by the prince of the kingdom of Persia for 21 days until Michael, who is described in Jude chapter 1, nine as the archangel and in revelation is depicted as the leader of the angelic army against satan and here in daniel chapter 10 described as the chief of princes came to help him so right away we are confronted with this reality or with this description that there's demons for this prince of persia was fighting against an angel which no human can do and was just was um, against a messenger of god which no angel would do Therefore, he quite simply and quite probably falls into that category of what we would call a demon. And not only does he exist, but he's powerful enough to hold his own against an angel. He held up what we believe or what most scholars would think is Gabriel for 21 days. And Gabriel was not able to get past him until Michael, one of if not the most powerful angel, came to help him. So right away we get this sense that demons are pretty powerful, which is pretty scary. But perhaps even more frightening than this is 
is this assertion and what we can conclude from this that Satan has a kingdom here. And not only is is there a kingdom, are there probably many demons and at least people below Satan, but there's a kingdom that is well organized and it has a structured hierarchy. Further proof of this comes from Matthew chapter 12 and verses 43 through 45. When Jesus is describing this, he says, When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And so not, not only do we have demons, not only do we have demons that are powerful, but we have a hierarchy. We have some demons are more powerful than others. Adding on to this, Mark chapter 9, verses 29, when Jesus is, drives out a demon from a man and the disciples ask, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Hmm. Further Proofs further text seeming to support this notion that there are demons that are very, very powerful. And there is a hierarchy of demons. And presumably, in our passage in Daniel chapter 10, there's this prince of the kingdom of Persia was the demon in charge of nation or the kingdom of Persia. That just seems to make sense by his name. But verse 20 points to the reality that the demon was engaged in trying to control that kingdom. Not only was he assigned to it, but he's trying to control. He was at battle with, the, with Gabriel over control of the most powerful of the superpower of the day. So does this mean that the nations on earth have demons assigned to them? Yeah, it seems so. Or at the very least, the most powerful nations seem to have a demon, at least one, assigned to trying to control it. And possibly every nation. Which is enforced by the reality which we see later on at the end of the passage there that there's another demon coming the prince of greece who which we know from world history 200 years after this book was written is going to be the next world superpower additionally mark 5 chapter 10 jesus is casting a demon out of a man and when he asks the man the demons what their name are they say legion for we are many And as he's casting them out, the the legion of demons begs Jesus not to send them out of the country. Why? Why Why do demons fear being sent out of a geographical place? They're spirits. They're not humans. They don't probably have a home. Well, it's, the text doesn't say, it doesn't give us an answer, but it would seem to support that the kingdom of darkness is organized through a tiered structure of responsibility similar to how our earthly governments and kingdoms have a tiered structure of responsibility. Have your leader, your king, your president, whatever, your governors, your city leaders, your community organizers, on and on down. And those demons in Mark chapter 5 seem to have been assigned to that specific geographical location. And perhaps they feared that if they were sent out of it, they would feel the repercussions from the one that they heard to. Additionally, it's not for nothing that Satan tempts Jesus with authority over all of the kingdoms of earth in Luke chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. So here's what Luke writes. When Jesus is being tempted, the devil takes him up and he showed to Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If then... You will worship me, it will be yours. 
Satan shows Jesus all of the kingdoms on earth and says, I am in control of all of them. I have put my people to govern and put be in control of all of them, influencing them, pointing them and directing them where I want them to go. And he offers them to Jesus. Now, how foolish is that? Clearly, we know who Jesus is. We know the God that Jesus worships. And Jesus tells him as such. But then John goes on. John writes this in, in 1 John 5, chapter 5, verse 19. He says to fellow Christians, he says, We know we are of God, and the whole world lies, that is passively, lies in the power of the evil one. Now, to quote Sam Storms here, another pastor, uh, well-researched and well-respected, he says that this language of in denotes helpless passivity, living under the influence, the power, and the authority of Satan in his grip and subject to his dominion. Apply this notion of the whole world. And what he's saying here is that not just the geographical location, but everything is under the dominion and in the power of the evil one. That is the financial world, the business and industry, the stock market, the banking system, political institutions and parties, entertainment, TV, films, media, radio, sports, education, the family, the home, the neighborhood, civic clubs, social service organizations, country clubs, everything. And we begin to feel the weight of what we're up against. And so what exactly is this work that Satan and his demons are trying to accomplish? As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Everything that Satan and his demons are trying to do in this world is summed up in that sentence. They and their purpose and their desire and everything they're plotting, scheming, trying to do, influencing and putting into action is for the purpose of blinding and preventing humanity from getting to know the gospel and believing it. All right, hold up. Wait, wait here a second. That's a lot. So what I have said so far is that demons are powerful. Not only that, but there are demons assigned to the nations. That means that here in America, I'm saying that there's a, a, a demon probably assigned to America, probably to Missouri, possibly to St. Charles County, possibly to St. Peter's, and maybe even on down from that. That's a lot to say. That seemed, and not only that, but that Satan's in control of everything and listing off every single part of our lives, right? So now we're getting into all the small minutiae. Aren't we over-spiritualizing things a little bit? Perhaps you remember that quote from C.S. Lewis that, that talks about this. It says, there are, there are two equal and opposite to which our race fall into about devils. One is to believe that they don't exist, and the other is to see their work in every bad thing that happens. And C.S. Lewis is, is using this quote, and I've heard it often within the church, and it's, it's a quote that's used to pull us back from the extremes of, one, believing that they don't exist because as C.S. Lewis goes on to say, they're happy with that. They're good with us not believing they exist because then we're not seeing or trying to figure out or acknowledging that they are working. And according to that quote, on the other hand, the other error, the other extreme is to over-spiritualize everything, to see demons behind every single little bad thing that happens, and that's, that's going too far. 
Except that's not the actual quote. That's the quote that I hear so often in church when we talk about spiritual warfare in a church setting. That's how the quote is summarized. But the actual quote is this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, which we said before. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. This is kind of extraordinary because this is C.S. Lewis writing this, who is one of the most intelligent and one of the most educated human beings in history. He was a professor at both Oxford and at Cambridge. But the second part of C.S. Lewis' warning was not against over-perceiving the efforts of the darkness, though, sidebar, Demons are not all-powerful. Note, they couldn't overcome an angel in the story of, of Daniel. They could merely withstand him for a moment of time. But C.S. Lewis's warning is against trying to get an insider's perspective on the kingdom of darkness. There's a, I tried to look up a whole bunch of different statistics on, on religion in America and some of these different things, and they're, it's, they're across the board. they Everybody has a statistic to fit their narrative. Um, but there is a general theme, a general trend that as Christianity has declined, and especially in my generation, has, as the nuns, as many of us call ourselves, the nuns non-religiously affiliated have grown, so too has the interest in a whole lot of spirituality and spiritual practices that are distinctly demonic. And in a number of interviews, people will say, I don't believe in it, but hey, if it works, I'll do it. Which is really interesting. And so what does the Bible say about spiritual warfare? Well, number one, it says Satan is the ruler of the world. And by the world, it means that which is under control of sin. And what does that mean for us? For one... We need to realize that, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our struggle is not against Trump. It's not against Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden. It's not against Putin. It's not against Assad. It's not against any other human being. They are not our adversary. Rather, our struggle is against the demons and the forces of darkness which are seeking to prevent everyone around us from getting to know and believe in and sharing in the eternal life that we hold so dear. And from Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, when the prince of Persia is, is said to be battling against Gabriel. It would seem that the leaders of our nations are under attack from the strongest of Satan's forces. Therefore, Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, that I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every manner, in every way. Is there a person or people 
and I'm assuming there is, because I don't know many people who don't have this, but is there someone in your life who seems to be doing and advocating things that are completely against the tenets of Christianity? completely against what we believe to be how God is wanting us to show love to the world. That may be another person in the church, maybe a coworker, maybe a leader, maybe anyone. And do they frustrate you to no end? And does it seem like it is impossible to talk with them, to reason with them? Everything they say goes against what we believe to be true about love, about God, about what we are meant to live and how we are meant to live as humans. Pray for them. That person that you cannot seem to agree with that is against you in every single way that you know to be good, you need to pray for them because they need it. There are forces at work here that are far more powerful than the human being that you are coming up against that are influencing the direction and decisions of our leaders and all the things that we come into contact with in our daily lives. And so when we come up against somebody that we just cannot stand, they seem to be the antithesis of what it means. Loving human being, man, they need our prayer. And secondarily, in the face of all of this, perhaps... This is a thought in your mind. Well, if Satan's in control of everything, if he's in control of the stock markets, education, the family, the home, civic clubs, all of this, maybe Christians just need to withdraw in their own little bubble and just have their own ecosystem and not have anything to do with the world around them lest we be corrupted. But let us remind ourselves of Jesus' prayer in in John 17, verses 14 through 19. Jesus prays this. He says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We are not here to be of the world, right? We are of God, as John wrote in the earlier verse. But, but, we are sent into the world. There's a popular saying in the church, we're in but not of the world. Let's change that a little bit. We're not of the world, but we are sent into the world. For the purpose of bringing the light of the gospel into the darkness. But if demons can hold their own against angels, like I'm proposing here, whether you accept that or not, what hope do we have? What can we do against spiritual forces of darkness? Because we're lo- we as humans are made a little lower than the angels. We are not as powerful as angels. We don't have the capabilities that they do. And if an angel can be withstood by a demon, what in the world are we going to do when we come up against a demon? If, in fact, we are coming up against demons in every single aspect of our life. Well, our hope is Jesus. 
simply put and, and quite clearly in the beautiful Sunday school answer that it is, it's so true. Our hope is Jesus. John writes this in chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Now, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Paul writes in Romans 5, chapters 5 and 6, if we have been united, I'm not going to put the full two chapters up there. I'm going to summarize them for you. It'd be another five sermons if we did. Um, if we have been united with Christ in his death, then we are united with him, with his life and his resurrection, and his power lives within us through the Holy Spirit. First John writes this in chapter 4, verse 4, Little children, as we studied last summer, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you, in each single one of you, is greater than he who is in the world. We talked about the book of Daniel. We've been discussing some of the events that happened in the book of Daniel. Remember, the book of Daniel was written before Jesus came. Before Jesus came and he died and he rose again and he gave to all who believe in him the gift of the Holy Spirit. I've used this analogy twice, maybe three times before. I'm going to use it again because I think it's a really beautiful illustration of how game-changing Jesus is. Nazi Germany took over most of the most of Europe, all of it. And if we're, we're going to ignore Italy and we're going to ignore the, the, the fronts... Um, with Russia for a second. We're just going to say Nazi Germany had control over Europe. They had complete and ironclad control of that continent. And yet the Allies on D-Day gained a foothold against the full might of the Nazi Empire, gained that foothold. They got that portion on that beach. And from that day forward, the end of the war was determined. The Nazi regime could not win. The Allies had their foothold. They were going and going to continue to press and press and press until the war was over. Yet, yet, the fighting was the fiercest after that point. Though Germany was going to lose, those of the Nazis were going to lose. It was inevitable at that point in time. They fought the fiercest in the losing battles. And so we are now. The kingdom of darkness had total and complete control over the world. They could resist even the messengers of God back in the time of Daniel. But when Jesus came in, when he established the kingdom of God on earth, the war, the end of the war is determined. And from that point on, the kingdom of God has been growing and the kingdom of darkness has been shrinking. And the end is determined. We know that when Jesus comes again, Satan will be overthrown. The kingdom of darkness will fall and God's kingdom will be realized in its fullness. And until that time, when Jesus left, he promised us a gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit who is himself. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, not, but of power and love and self-control. We have God himself living within us. Demons may be able to resist angels. They may be able to put up a good fight against 
forces in, of God and the army of God, but they cannot hold a candle. They do not have any authority. They do not have any say or sway or any influence over God himself. And he is the one living inside of you. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What does the Bible say about spiritual warfare? It says Satan is the ruler of this world. But Jesus is the ruler of all. All right, why do we talk about this? Why do we get into this? this is, perhaps you're saying this is a bunch of hokey. This is, doesn't make any sense. I don't believe you. Okay, that's fine. Why do we preach on this? What effect does it have on this? Well, Christ Church, my hope for you, my intention in preaching this, and what I believe is God's intention in including this and, and talking about this and painting this picture of the war that we are in is so that we may know what we're fighting against. We do not have the option of whether we engage in this war or not. We cannot possibly say, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm not going to fight those battles. Every moment we're alive, when we go to work, there we are shining the light of the gospel in our workplaces, in our families, in our friendships, when we go out into the neighborhood, when we go out to eat at, at restaurants. In every single action we are doing, we are called, we are sent not just called, we are physically sent and have been sent into the world to show the light in the darkness because as the Bible seems to be saying, there is a hierarchy in the kingdom of darkness and a powerful amount of beings who are working overtime to their most, at their fiercest, in all of their efforts to make sure that those around us do not see the light of the gospel. Yet we do not fight on our own power. We don't do it by our own ability. We, may, we might say words that just seem stupid. They don't make sense. It's, man, why did I say it that way? Why did I talk about Jesus that way? Why did, I, why did I, 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 I say that to that thing? Obviously, that was dumb. That was stupid. I'll never talk about Jesus again. No, 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 no. It's not our, it's not our ability to be eloquent. It's not our ability to be smart or intelligent or to, to defend God. God can defend himself. We're not doing this fight. We're not fighting this war on our own power. No, we are fighting through the power and the victory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He has fought the battles. He has won the war, and now he has sent us out to finish it. And in the end, he will come and he will bring an end to all of this. And in the meantime, as we are here, as we are out here, as we are bringing as many people as we can to come with us and do and to have eternal life, he has empowered us and he is fighting and working through us. To put it another way, and this is how we'll close today. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, there's an illustration, um, an event that happens with the, the prophet Elisha. So, when the servants of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold... An army with horses and chariots was all around the city. This was a physical nation that was coming up against Israel. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
And then Elisha prayed and he said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. My hope is for us to have our eyes opened and to see that there is far more at work, far more things being, being done on our behalf more especially than anything in this world and what we might see than in the arguments that we might have and in, in, in the solutions that might be proposed in, in the political divide which is going to continue to, to increase over these next few months over the fears over the coronavirus and what it might do to our stock markets and, and our jobs and everything like that. There is so much more at work than that which we can physically see with our own two eyes. God is at work. The Holy Spirit is at work and His forces are working on our behalf. So Christ Church, as we study this spiritual warfare, what we've just done is we've gone through kind of a survey, a survey of what the Bible has to say. Over the next few weeks, we'll kind of dive more in depth into some of these things. But my, my hope, my hope is that you are a little shocked, a little shocked by this reality of, of what we're describing in spiritual warfare and therefore more reliance upon God in your life and in every single action and more convinced that you need him now and need his power and you need his love and you need his ability to love those around us so that you can be that light because you are sent to be that light. So in the name of Jesus, I pray that we will be. That Christ church, that the churches around us, that the community of Jesus Christ, all of our brothers and sisters, that we can and we will be that light. Not looking at the physical things that are in front of us, the impediments, the armies, all of the massive things that seem to be coming against the gospel of Jesus Christ. But instead we can see him who has won and who will finish it. Amen.